Hello and welcome to Tuya House Talks, the Insurgent Architect's House for a Creative Writing Podcast Series. Today, we present an interview of Ian Kinney, led by Paul Monnier. My name is Mahmoud Ababne, and I am a research assistant for the Tia House project at the University of Calgary. Tia House is honored to be podcasting to you from Treaty 7 territory. We specifically acknowledge the Blackfoot Confederacy, comprising the Siksika, Bikani, and Kainai First Nations, as well as the Tsutina First Nation, comprising the Chiniki, Perispa, and Wesley First Nations. We acknowledge also the Métis Nations of Alberta Region 3. In this interview, Ian Kenny talks about their experience of falling from the seventh floor, recovery and rehabilitation. Kenny also discusses how this traumatic experience influenced the process of writing their first book of poetry, Air Soul. Kenny uses the term orchestral composition to describe the way of sourcing his material that are inspirational to their book. Kenny and Monnier delve into conversations about how experimental writings are a form of resistance and subversive practices as well. They also tackle issues of mental health, emotional labor, and ableism. Ian Kenny holds an MA in English from the University of Calgary. Kenny plays with found text. In their debut book of poetry entitled Air Salt, a trauma memoir as a result of the fall, Kenny unwrites his hospitalization and recovery from a seven-story fall and uses poetry as part of his neuro-rehabilitation. This bisexual settler lives in Calgary and occasionally cares for his family's kinship house, a net-zero homestead on the Kainai territory between Lethbridge and Vulcan, Alberta. Paul Monnier is currently an English PhD candidate at the University of Calgary. Paul's poetry explores spaces between experimental form and subject representation, and his work has been published in Node magazine, Filling Station magazine, The Anti-Langorious Project, and more. Paul's Sherk-funded dissertation, Mapping Poetics, Navigate Calgary's Queer History, through experimental poetry, exploring how a temporal crossing weaves between past, present, and a poetics of a queer futurity. Paul also studied photography at the Alberta College of Art and Design, now AU Arts, back when chemical processing was still hip. I hope you enjoy this episode. I am so excited to be here today. This is Paul Minier, and I am meeting the fabulous writer Ian Kinney to discuss their debut book of poetry, Air Salt, a trauma memoir as a result of the fall. Thank you, Ian, so much for being here with me today. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Your book really, really moved me, and I think it's a really interesting and exciting kind of opportunity for us to meet, even though it's through this online conversation. And we've certainly had many great conversations in person prior to this, but I'm really excited to be here today with you and to talk about your debut book of poetry. And I was wondering if you could just maybe uh, tell our listeners, tell our, tell our audience right now just a little bit about, uh, about yourself, about this book, how it came to be, and, and what air salt means, means to you. 
Thank you. As you mentioned, my name is Ian Kinney, and uh, I'm a Calgary poet, and I have been spending the past decade or more at work in process of trying to reconcile this event that happened to me. I fell seven stories in 2008, and I spent a lot of time in recovery and, and uh, rehabilitation from that process. And my writing of this book was part of that recovery and part of that journey, and I'm still on it. Air Salt is a trauma memoir that I've written to reflect the process of its composition as a collaboration. I didn't write it myself. I wrote it in large part using found or appropriated material from all of the medical records and the hospital notes and the get well soon cards. All of the writing and text that sort of surrounded and helped inform how I understood where I was in my recovery is used to frame the narrative in the book. Wonderful. Uh, for those who don't have you know, a copy yet, <laughs> go out and pick one up. But for those who haven't seen it, um, there are so many different kinds of ways that the textual information is presented. I suppose I'm talking about multimodality, right? Uh, different modes of how the narrative comes through, through visual imagery from your hospital, x-rays and imagery there, as well as the way even text itself um, is brought together and assembled in different kinds of ways to help channel that narrative. And you sort of just referenced the fact that you didn't write it yourself. And I suppose what I find really, really powerful is that while reading through something so intensely personal to you, there's a really strong sense of communal community, but also communal voices that come through in a story that feels so cohesive, so, so together, like the way you worked with all these different kinds of parts, but brought them into such a strong voice, not a singular voice, but just a strong voice is really, really moving. And I'm wondering, could you speak a little bit about that community and, you know, who contributed content that you assembled into this project, which became this book? Um, because I think that idea of community is very central in your writing, even though it's such a personal piece. Well, I'm, I'm glad you asked, because initially when I had set to, to begin this process, I had initially intended to recount my rehabilitation in a sort of expository prose. I wanted to tell a story. But by writing a memoir as an amnesiac, I had to narr events, narrate events that dealt expressly with myself, but I could not recall them. So in order to help me navigate this, that particular challenge, I found ways of, of sourcing the writing around me. And, uh, and the community around me that not only sort of helped cultivate a, a incredibly supportive environment throughout my rehabilitation, but the, the writing that they provided was inspirational for this compositional process. And I, I like to consider how I've called this majority of writing in, in this as, as more of a, an orchestral composition. Like there were uh, different texts that contributed at different points of time, and I, I cut them all up and I scattered them throughout. And I had a very precise, very specific process in how I did that. And the uh, collaborative component of this book uh, is really drawn out in the ways in which these voices recur and whose voices appear. And one of the ways that I end the book is with the acknowledgments to all of the contributors and all of the different institutions and individuals who offered writing that I later pilfered and appropriated and recontextualized and reframed as part of this recovery. Yeah, and I, it's, it's, I'm so... I keep returning to the book around this idea that so many voices are brought into this space that speaks collectively through such a clear palimpsest of, <laughs> of voices, but at the same time, the outcome really speaks to what you went through. Uh, and I think that that's something I haven't seen, something I haven't seen. <laughs> I was struggling to find the words right there, but 
anytime a reader like myself encounters a text that's so definitively unique to what you went through, I think we're going to try to find ways, at least I try to find ways of separating out all the different voices from each other or figuring out where I may or may not relate. And I, I do relate to aspects of, the, of this text, which I can talk to you about later. But I think it's a really incredible thing to have polyvocality come together through something very distinct and special to you that still hails back to all those people around you. I'm saying the same thing again, I guess. Well, and this is, it's important that we revisit and, and return to these ideas because it, it tells me that there's something important in, in what we're working towards. And, and there's, I feel like when we're, we're referring to the sort of collective healing, which is really what I'm, I'm looking at, I'm looking at the shared expressions that we all offer one another after a traumatic event. How do we make sense of it? How do we process it? What stories do we tell? How can we better reorient to the life after this thing happened, this indescribable phenomena, this, 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 this event? And one of the, I, I feel like we're, we're in not only a unique historical moment for all of the cliched reasons that you've heard regarding the pandemic, but it is, as a, as a, collective and, and cultural trauma that we're all enduring at this moment. I'm fascinated to see the different stories that people are creating right now and how they're trying to frame and reframe and point towards all of these possible uh, ways that they can not only work through it, but also uh, help each other to work through this uncertainty and this despair that this, this the threat of death that the, uh, the pandemic has provided us all. When reading your book, it feels like there's a persistent lifeline between what you've gone through and all of the people around you who've not only contributed content to support you in this, in this work, or at least be part of something that has culminated in this work, but that idea of community and connection, which I know is important to you because of, of your volunteer work and your involvement with various writer circles. And yeah, I, I think that that's really powerful. I, I'm really drawn to the, the passage you have towards the end of the book that comes after your acknowledgments where you say, thank you, all of you, odd you, even you. And as someone reading this book, and I know that we're gonna be privileged with a reading from you shortly, but as someone reading through this book and finding aspects that we may or may not relate with or may or may not clearly understand in terms of how the deconstructed language is weaving and working throughout the book, there's still that sense of all of these, all of these voices, all of these perspectives kind of feeding into this, like you said, appropriated or conceptual construct. And then to get to a note like that, and there's a, there's a voluminous amount of thanks here in the end of your book, which is really touching. And I think so important, especially for a conceptual project, but to end with that, thank you, that sort of simple gratitude where we as readers now sort of feel like we've become a part of a community is, I'm not trying to appropriate myself into this and involve myself, but you were, and you are. It's it's fine. <laughs> you were, and and by uh, inserting yourself into into this recovery process, I feel like that's that's really helpful because you don't work through a, a trauma or an injury like this alone, and we're not going to work through any of the traumas that we encounter in our life by ourselves and fully. I I don't think. I feel like the one of the ways that we'll be able to help process it is is through this this retelling and and the shared telling. And and Aerosalt is really my my creative journey and exploration through what happens through this retelling and how how can I use this retelling and extend this retelling ad nauseum and see what sorts of generative creative output I can I can conjure. And uh, and it's 
I, I surprise myself. The, the book surprises me even still. And, and part of that comes from the process, the, the really almost regimented process, the way that I, I, I took the, I not only found these writings, but I also uh, broke them apart in a very particular way and I put them back together in a very particular way. And it seems like that uh, structure that I, I continually broke, broke apart and then refabricated and then broke apart again was uh, shone light into the, the cracks that I never thought would, would, would be there, but I always suspected were there until I actually wrote the book in the way that it's per currently presented. It's, uh, I'm truly astounded by the little flickering moments of, of what other people have, have picked up on as, as this, this intimacy, which given the, the sort of mechanical and rigorous way that I, I put all of this writing together, I didn't, I didn't expect to, 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 to see me sharing so much intimate details about my life with these, um, but, but not by, but not, not by talking about them myself, just through editing what other people have said. It's, it's really fascinating. Yeah. I like that word intimacy. That feels so appropriate. That feels so central actually to, to everything we've discussed so far. Before you offer a, a short reading so that so that our listeners can experience some of your writing. And I know that there's some detail in the book around the title, but could you give a little bit of context around why you named it Air Salt, a trauma memoir as a result of the fall? It's a very great question, as it's, it's a question that my mom continues to ask me because she's not satisfied with the answer. Because there are a number of answers, and I can, I can answer uh, any number of ways at any number of point in time. One is uh, the original title of the manuscript was simply as a result of the fall, which was it was a direct phrase that I cited from the police reports at the very beginning of my research. And as a result of the fall, Mr. Kinney suffered the following injuries. And I figured that that would be uh, a, an interim way of introducing, in, introducing and framing my, my manuscript. And as a result of the fall, the more that I said it, the more re I repeated that phrase, the more that certain phones just began to sort of cohere of, out of their own accord. Uh, as a result of the fall, as a result of the fall, as a result of the fall, air salt, was, was one of the sort of deviations that came through that uh, refrain. And uh, another explanation that I like to offer is that um, some people said, I like to imagine that perhaps I did a somersault in the air. Uh, one way to say, it, I did an air salt in the air. And, and another is, it's actually a, uh, when you Google air salt, I discovered after I named the manager or the, the project this, it's actually a, a form of curing fish and drying fish is you, you sort of salt them in the air, which I thought was interesting. And, um, I really have no idea what fishing imagery has to do with the manuscript. But that's just like a, a strange uh, anecdote to throw in as, as perhaps a, a red herring. Uh, other uh, sort of missed hearing that my mom heard was that air salt sounds like assault. And, and, I, and I was like sort of struck by that. And I was like, oh, wow. And, and in what ways is this manuscript an assault? And or how is this manuscript an exploration of, of my own assault? So this is a couple uh, different ideas that I'm bouncing around. But the, as you mentioned, the manuscript does, or the, the book rather, offers some poetic maneuverings around what air salt could point towards. Yeah, I, I think I'm, I'm detecting a little bit of um, pleasure around the idea that there's numerous ways to approach such a, like a complex metaphor. I honestly have no idea what air salt means, but it, when it, it came to me one afternoon while I was walking from the train, I was just like, that's a great title. I'm going to go with that. <laughs> and, and it stuck. And really it, it was from this, this rep rep repetitive mishearing uh, sort of subvocally and, and air salt was just sort of like it fit. And that's how I'm moving forward. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much. Why don't, why don't we invite you to, uh, to do a little bit of a reading so that you can share some of your work with, with us. Of course. Thank you. So now it's just me the shell of a person and a functional logic. 
We hardly see each other now. So how can he be aware of what he's lost? All the same, even if only in parts. The mind that I connected with, maybe his brain was so jostled so much that maybe he won't even. I don't have analysis for this, so I study instead. Even if his character is obscure, and if he forgets the words, that he absolutely isn't, but he tries his best to be coherent. He says now that there's no justification for such a fall, that's all. He doesn't know why he jumped, no, confused, of course, but attributable to his resolve to use the past. It gets easier to correct himself in person. Ongoing evaluation and reassessment. Anyone can fall, cracked. A cast that softens may need to repeat a meaningful phrase, lesson, or word. Focus. Otherwise, it may not hold the bones in place. Each person's personality, strength, and potential can be restored to their original shape, structure, and mechanical changes occur to find the right words. Padding is here to protect your skin, and the cast allows the body to change bone tissue into bone tissue and cuff and be honest with yourself and leak and reflect on how, if you remove padding or cut away pieces of your cast, the position of the bones changes and agitate and breathe. As a result of the operation, she repeats her answers and her replies. She loses sensation in her arms. She describes a fetish. I scribble stars, a garb, a bleeding scar. The narrative itself may contain amnesia. The amnesia itself may contain a narrative. She paints students at ACAD with tumors in her neck, which they remove at some point alien, like some kind of specter, or rather, my questions flutter like a skeleton. They bring her here to recover, a conversation. I'm sorry. She paints students at ACAD, heat and hot water included. They bring her here to recover, a conversation with very little movement and even less sensation. I break my back and it never heals. I learn that computers can make music with the murmurs of the mind. I learned that a catheter harasses, not as uncomfortable as I think, however, in fragments. They have me sign a consent form. I smear it with leftover gravy just to make it edible. The sentence appears, carefully designed to move, as a result of the fall. I don't remember this part. Not beginning, we begin again. The fatal errors that you take in occur in a photo, inpatient admission, June 28th. 2008. The following facts may help you to understand the dangers of falling. A picture of someone can help. You remember better as you notice, as you write things down, repetition in your right legs, flexion, relaxed aversion that you say that you can steal the assigned essays, key words to someone's course of study. Please read completely and keep for future reference. A fatal error has awkward. The sentence is a conglomeration of chemical matters. When these are deranged and only chemical medicines may cure them, use breaks to nerve, spine it, a curvature of parent, periods at the height of sudden pressure. As a result of the fall, serious breaks occur. A message, a massage, a successful purpose streak after surgery. And by this technique, regrow. Apply these same methods and ice, shine. Use them to destroy tissue regrouping at the wound. Treat with a proper diet and internal measures. It requires self-control. I have visited him. Something about the incident makes things that I never see surface. Between eating, sleeping, channel surfing, and talking with visitors, he spontaneously forgets about what he's lost, the window, 
He doesn't, not hinged on past events, I think. With a lost revelation, let's see if I can break this down simply and logically, like watching somebody you know get tortured. It's easy to say something that you don't mean in text. These things that are and which I never see surface, a little confusing, of course, but it pans out and they're on different sides of the world. Communicating, confirm, focus. You know that I'm not going to summarize. I wonder if you can tell if something happens, this conversation of the most recent past events. I'm not going to figure out which parts. That butchers it in hindsight. But now he's gone. Thank you, Ian. Thank you. That's beautiful. Thank you so much. That's, that was a wonderful selection as well that you chose from the book. Uh, I really appreciate that. Thank you for sharing that. I have a, a, a sort of a two-part question for you. In the first part, I'd like to ask you about time, in part because of what you shared at the, you know, you, you've spoken with me earlier about the idea of, you know, revisiting some of these pieces. You've talked about the, the idea around, you know, the accident occurred in 2008, if I'm correct, the fall. You know, you published it in 2019. Um, I've heard you read prior to this. I've heard you read uh, selections from Aerosol prior to its publication, but then, you know, the book comes out and of course now we're visiting it now. Um, I know you've had an ability to, to travel around a little bit and, and read from this and, and, and celebrate the, the publication, which is a really big deal. And I'm interested in the way time works because, you know, there are, you know, you, you've referenced that your recovery took quite a long time. There are people who contributed content that you used as some of the found writing throughout the works. And that, that all comes from different kinds of time. There's, an, of course, this period of time prior, like leading up to the, the production and then the publication of the book. And then there's an experience for someone, you know, like myself or a reader who's revisiting this at a, at a later time where everything feels so immediate. And I'm wondering if it's something for you that you feel you can pin down as a moment of time, or if it's something that has a continuance to it that stays with you. And I, I think I mean that more than just physically through recovery, but, it, but if there's something to this that you feel is maybe timeless, despite it being so definitively anchored to a moment. So I'm interested in how time works. And I'm also, the part two to this question is I'm wondering how it feels for you regarding kind of the emotional labor around trauma writing and to, to write it, to produce it, but then to share it with the world and be so vulnerable and how the emotional labor, like what, what your feelings are towards that emotional labor. So I suppose that time is a longevity question or if we can really be even definitive around the time in contrast with maybe the emotional labor that you've engaged with to, to put this book out there into the world. So I hear you framing roughly two questions because there, were, there was a lot there. Thank you. But the way that I receive that right now is I hear you reflecting on or asking me to reflect on on how I engage with time in this manuscript or in this in this process and uh, the emotional labor, how that's what that feels like and how I uh, approach that moving forward with this with this man with this book. And um, because it is fairly intimate uh, reflection on on my own recovery. Um, but I did it by in, in many ways, sort of taking myself, removing myself as the speaking subject. I, at no point do I actively speak in this in this book so much as I, I serve as an editor or a, a, a collaborator uh, and and more like someone who's who's serving as a conductor. And so I have all of these 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 different voices and all of these different texts and and uh, the emotional labor that goes into it is that I have to reread and revisit and revise all of these different writings which are, again, these 
they were, many of which were written as, as personal communiques to me or as personal communiques between my friends and family that I, I later approached them and I was like, Can, may, may I use this to pursue this process? And, and so they were all in agreement. They thought that it was a great idea and I was, was grateful for, the, for their support. But all of this is deferral because I'm subconsciously answering your question in the back of my mind while I yammer. So thank you for creating space for that. <laughs> uh, the question of time is really fascinating when we're discussing trauma, because there's something about the event itself which extends outside of time and yet infringes on time and affects and ripples throughout our experience of time thereafter. It's, uh, it, it's, it's the disruptive time that um, breaks time in a lot of ways. And representing that in, in a very specific sort of text is challenging, because how, how do I take this experience of time that I have and represent that in, an, in a more or less narrative format. And the way that I chose to do that was through constant deconstruction and dissemination and cutting up any assemblance, any assemblance or any resemblance of a coherence that was beginning to emerge the next page that's sort of a reset and serves as, and that this is again, really resemblant of how I experience my recovery from brain injury. Every day or every moment that I would sort of go to rest there was sort of an internal reset that happened and I would forget everything that had happened a few moments before my internal memory or my short-term memory, I should say, was still recovering. And I was hoping to, um, by structuring the, the sort of anti-narrative format of, of air salt in this way, there's sort of a, a perpetual short-term memory loss in there, but there's also this anticipatory memory. There's this, some, there's this I'm remembering things before they happen uh, in, in the manuscript. And, and this is, I use the echoes and the repetitions and the refrains through these different verses and poems as these nodes that uh, sort of all point to the trauma, but also all serve as really helpful reference points through recovery. And in regards to the emotional labor involved, this event in my life was uh, emotionally devastating. And my physical healing was remarkably fast. Uh, 80% of the people who fall seven stories die on impact. But uh, two months after I fell seven stories, I was given leave to return to my to my parents' home, and uh, so and and I was I was walking, which was in no some nothing short of a miracle in many ways. Also, a uh, attest to the, the the tremendous advances we've made in medical science. Uh, I have I have a cybernetic implant in my spine that allows me to walk, and it's super cool, but also super painful. <laughs> and um, the physical labor required in my rehabilitation. I'm, I'm trying to find a word to say that it sort of anticipates or sort of reflects and uh, or, or, or could have, was kind of a precursor for the emotional labor involved in, in making uh, sense of this, this thing that happened. I, I'd learned that I had jumped off a balcony and that I had hurt myself forever. And moreover, I had to keep re- repeating this to everyone who I would meet because no one knew my story. No one understood why I couldn't remember them or, or why I wasn't walking as fast as everyone else. And so the, it became something that just became part of my life thereafter uh, was I was always going to be talking about this event and it would always, uh, and I would always have this, this cybernetic implant in my spine. I'd always be experiencing pain and memory loss and the, the repetitions that I have taken on and the routines and the, the rituals that have helped inform my daily living. I, I, I took also into my, my, my writing practice, which, which helped to, to craft the, the manuscript, which helped to, to build into the book. And uh, I'm still writing and continuing to revise and make additions and amendments to to the manuscript as it is. It's it's a it's an ongoing process. Is the same way that I feel like I am. A really neat idea that this piece, which is 
working through all of these different kinds of voices that coalesce around a story continues, right? Continues forward, but continues outward, perhaps, as well in terms of iterations of a story that you continue to to share and to tell. If I'm reading that right, I'm, I'm sort of just riffing off the idea that you just shared. I'm, I'm grateful that you received that and that you, you bounced it back in my direction, but I'm pretty certain it had something to do with this idea of repetition, which I think relates to this idea of of how I experience and represent time in, in my writing, how time sort of imposes itself. And, and one of the great ways that I can survive that is through um, the cycling and recycling of uh, not only uh, writing that I, I use and, and expressions that are around me, but also of routines and, and exercises that help to give, not only help keep me active, but also help to inform a direction and energy and motion in my living. Do you mind if I ask, since you've, you've sort of introduced this idea that I'm really interested in, is there a kin, like a kin text, a kinship text that looks at different kinds of poetic form, not bound to the constraint-based found poetry that you use to create air salt? But is there, are there other writing forms that circle around this story or practices that you engage with that complement the text? Or are you continuing to work with all of the different kinds of permutations of conceptual or constraint-based writing that, that are so central and, you know, definitive in this text. In terms of style, the way you wrote Air Salt, is there other writing around it that maybe is complementary to what you've put forward? Great question. Uh, and, and it's, you know, tells me that you're, you've noticed what I'm posting uh, because you're, you're familiar with my experiences, I think, uh, with Kinship House. My, my family uh, has a beautiful self-sustaining net zero home uh, off-grid in the middle of, of southern Alberta on, on Treaty 7 land there. And it's uh, right next to the Little Boat River, not far from the Sundown Medicine Wheel. And it's a beautiful, beautiful space where I, uh, I've i had the privilege to uh, watch over my family's home while my parents uh, travel or, or go on vacation. And uh, during that period of time, I I take the memory-aiding aid strategies that I, I had to learn during my neural rehabilitation to sort of help me structure my day and remind myself of what I was doing five minutes ago. And uh, I kept a, a dutiful log of, of my events and experiences out on the Earthship. And the Earthship's log uh, follows the sort of space travel conceit, the idea being that I'm in the Earthship the same way that a Starfleet officer might be on a, a starship someplace and following this imaginary world of, of Star Trek and, and so forth. And so using that conceit, I, I extended this life writing practice to rather than just sort of rephrasing and reforming writing around this uh, traumatic event, but to personally recounting and doing my best to dutifully record my own physical and emotional journey while I was in this sort of self-contained world in the middle of uh, the, the coolies of Southern Alberta. And it's, um, I, I'm not sure... I, I, the, the, the Earthship's log is uh, not only, it's, it's served primarily as, as, again, this record of my time there. And uh, it's, it's a different kind of exploration of life writing than air salt, because air salt is an exploration of life writing that, as you say, is informed by these uh, conceptual and experimental styles and aesthetics. But the Earthship's log is uh, following this conceit of, of a very scientifically minded, almost militantly structured uh, routine of, of, record, of recording. And, uh, and, and it takes a lot of its uh, inspiration, in fact, from Robert Croach's ledger, if I, if I remember correctly. But I don't know if that answers your question, but I, it, was, it was a great question because it got me thinking about the Earthship again. Because <laughs> that is a book that I, uh, I, could, I could 
frame and reframe the the Earthships log into a story that I could offer offer the community as well. Yeah, I suppose the reason I was interested in some of the writing that you, that may or may not complement Airsolg or work beyond Airsolg, I suppose, is is it such a strong book? It has such a strong voice to it, and I am curious, you know, how your writing progressed into the work of Airsolg, and if Airsolg itself perhaps shifted the way you write or or look at the creative writing practice um, after you put it out in the world. Thank you. The my writing practice before. Uh, my injury was very much focused on the horrors of the zombie monster. And I was, I was really fixated on how our news media was uh, continuing to offer uh, the population uh, a myriad of threats, microbial threats. We were, we were uh, bombarded with all of these anxieties regarding swine flu and H1N1. And uh, it, it felt to me that they were, the, the newspaper was, was genuinely trying to, to scare its readership. And they were participating in, or partaking rather, in a lot of the same tropes and, and manners that I would witness in, in horror movies. And so I rewrote the newspaper to document the zombie apocalypse. And my, my creative writing was really focusing on how I could appropriate this text and then cut it up and then reframe and revise it so that I could sort of call attention to these uh, stylistic and or thematic parallels between horror fiction and the news. And then I, my, my life became a bit of a horror story and, and I was hospitalized and, and, and was, was in a coma. And during my coma, I actually experienced a number of zombie themed hallucinations. I thought that I was on a cruise ship. Uh, that was like how I made sense of the intercoms, I guess, was because I, uh, on previous visits to a cruise ship, the captain may make announcements on an intercom and, and in my brain delirium state, I, I thought, oh, I must be on a cruise ship and this must be the zombie apocalypse because why else would I be in the hospital? <laughs> and so, you know, the, nothing really made sense at the time, but I was um, so captured by that fear of the zombie. When I left the hospital, I immediately returned to that zombie writing project and uh, continued to write uh, this, this, in this appropriative style where I would take writing that I, I encountered in the media and then revise it to my my creative purposes. So that was, I think, your question about like sort of trajectory of writing. It's sort of moved from this very sort of conceptual exploration of horror within the news to uh, a more of a, a practical application of like how can I take this this strategy, this this tactic of of unwriting media texts and to, to dis- discover other messages that are within it and to take that to these this this collection of writing around my own event. And it's not a, a pandemic or a, of, of different kinds. It's more of a, this, this trauma. And so moving from that, how has my writing process changed? I feel like uh, I've, I've taken to really valuing scientific processes or, or styles and aesthetics that uh, approach or resemble or parody the, the, the scientific mind space and what, and what that endeavors to do as this is sort of sense of, of attempt of mastering a world, which is mysterious and invisible. And the the idea with the trauma is that it's 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 kind of unknowable, and uh, yeah, nevertheless, the writing experience is one in which I'm trying to revisit and 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 make sense of and revise it. And sometimes uh, science is is all about that, that framing and that mastering and the representation of the of the thing. And um, a trauma is it's not really possible. So there's this tension that I, I hope comes through an air salt between the uh, the scientific. Uh, vocabulary and the expressions of understanding. I was just, oh yes, he has these injuries and this is what this is about to this very personal uh, mystery and and terror of not knowing and, and how I'm able to resolve that and reconcile with that through this perpetual revisitation and re- revisitation and, and reframing and revision. That's a, such a thoughtful answer. And I was thinking as you were speaking just now 
a little bit about vocabulary. You know, I, I try to be a good reader. I try to be an attentive and a researched reader. I, I'm, I'm the kind of person who encounters vocabulary and looks it up. And, uh, you know, that's just a nature of what I do as well as, an, as someone who experiments with poetry. But there's an interesting space in your book between, what's the right adjective? I don't want to call horrifying imagery, but imagery that's really... Harrowing. It's been Harrowing. <laughs> there's the word. With bolts and, you know, surgical x-rays and all that. So there's a space between a vocabulary from medical practice that is heightened and urgent and absolutely central to, to life itself in contrast, well, not in contrast, but there's a space between the vocabulary that puts us in that conversation and the imagery that really brings the urgency and, and the parallel of, of what's being discussed in broader terms all throughout the book, right? The imagery is all throughout the book. And I, I found it compelling how, as a reader, I could work between both spaces. This is part of that multimodality comment I made earlier, which is that so many different voices come through in this text, but not just voices, but also medium, different kinds of medium. And I find the, the space between vocabulary and whether or not one understands the, the density of some of the medical jargon throughout the text. I don't mean jargon in a negative sense, but just the medical terminology in the text. And then the imagery that anchors the imagination in a very real corporeal space of the body, the fr fragility of the body, uh, vulnerability of the body, but also sort of the incredible medical technological advancements of, of this body as a survivor uh, is a really powerful set of poles that I think we move between. I think we've both read books where vocabulary can be alienating. And I didn't find that with this text whatsoever. I found, I found that it pulls us into the space between the language and then the urgency of the the imagery. That's, that surprises me because the the use of a lot of the medical jargon in in air salt was. In, I, I was hoping that it would create a sense of sort of the kind of alienation and the uh, strangeness that gets ascribed to you because like they they use abbreviations which uh, are are shorthand for for nurses and doctors, but to uh, the layman they really appear these 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 quizzical and and when I again this book has has undergone many versions and forms in my as a, my master's thesis, I had to include all of uh, a, a legend for every single uh, abbreviation that I included. And so there was two pages of just me um, providing clarity. of just like, ah, TSH actually means thyroid stimulating hormone. PM and R is physical medis medicine and rehabilitation. ICU is intensive care unit. Um, like abbreviations that might be otherwise common sense, we might think within the medical field. Uh, I couldn't, oh, I couldn't hope that my reader knew. So I, uh, in my master's thesis, I included this really helpful legend. But apparently, the the abbreviations weren't as alienating and, and as uh, oppressive as I as I as they felt to me to you. So that's that's that's, that's quite an interesting uh, note because they they felt more intimate to you and either I, I framed them in such a way that they didn't um, have that same sort of uh, dispassionate diagnostic tone. And uh, maybe that is something to do with how I sort of juxtapose that language immediately next to the get well student cards and the the personal journal entries that I was making. Yeah, I, I think, I, again, apologies, I didn't really ask a question there. I'm just sort of amazed at this. I'm amazed that, you, that, that that's something that you picked up on. That's really cool. Please continue. 
What I find really uh, moving is that some poets, and I know that you and I are both practicing poets and we read poetry, sometimes people choose a set of, or a certain kind of system of vocabulary or language in order to exalt complex ideas or complex metaphors or complex emotional landscapes. Um, and that, that are, you know, and the vocabulary is germane to the to the ideas that, that we're working through in the text. But while you're, while air salt is full of medical terminology in some places, right? Not, not all of the, the poems have it, but I find that the multimodal form of the book is, is creating space as opposed to sort of a, a uniform presentation of this is the text, read it, and then take from it what you will. Or these are my images, look at them, understand them, if you do or don't, whatever. I find that your book doesn't do that. It doesn't rest on some sort of de facto form of presentation. I find it's more about space creation which in some ways is a gesture back to what we started with talking about around community, you know, polyvocality. And there's a real poetics in that, that, hey, that I haven't encountered before in terms of this landscape, this medical conversation, this idea of trauma and healing. And I think space creation is just a really incredible thing. And, and to build a question off of that, I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit to experimental writing or constraint-based writing or conceptualism, if that's the word we want to go with, and how you feel this kind of written form can serve the voices of various communities, be it, you know, the racialized, the queer, any anything related to mental health or physical health. I mean, there are so many different kinds of writers who are using experimental form, but what I'm interested in is how experimental writing practice can really bring awareness to conversations that that need more attention, especially for me around uh, physical health and mental health. Um, I myself have experimented with the way constraint-based writing can crack open meaning within difficult conversations where articulating something straightforward is inappropriate. And so I'm wondering how you feel this kind of experimental writing can support communities of, let's call it activism. Sure, I'll go with activism. Okay, the, the term experimental writing is a really helpful moniker because it's so broad reaching. Uh, what, what, what is an experiment? Who, who, what are we experimenting on? Who is this experiment for? What, what, what are the purposes for it and, and what's the what's the audience I uh, an experiment for someone who's still learning to 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 write their letters is um, you know they're 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 drawing weird angles in the margins and they're figuring out how um, to cross their T's and dot their eyes so to speak and uh, so that and their experiments would just be like making multiple dots and and just figuring out how to cross T's in different ways and that that's part of their uh, learning and exploration of of the language in that in that medium and when I approach experimentalism I, I approach them with this idea that this is not only a, a subversive practice it's not only but it's 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 there's a, there's a sense of resistance there and uh, there there's a format and and uh, process of, of writing that we're all, uh, or, or that is institutionalized and codified and uh, really structured and regimented, and uh, that structuralism is um, historically oppressive. <laughs> and the and and so there are a number of populations and individuals who uh, exist in spaces where that oppression is uh, unmanageable. They can't 
express or explore the ideas that they want to with the uh, tools that have been provided. And so they uh, retool the, the language and they find these uh, subversive and um, experimental ways to, to play with the expression so that they can better approach their own experience and understanding of the world. And you, you find this, I feel, across genres of writing. And uh, it's, it's a really uh, important area of study, I think, is just how do people test and or experiment or explore the the rules that they've been given. And I was given some very explicit rules around around writing and constraint based writing is uh, an an invitation I think to for for writers to take this rule and just take it to the extreme. And what does it tell you about about that rule? What does that tell you about language? What can you learn about how you relate to rules? And how, what can that tell you about how you relate to this language through this through this construct? So the this idea of experimentalizing or experimental writing as being a, a subversive and, and sort of necessary response to oppression uh, and of, of populations that have been historically marginalized or, or who, who are processing uh, violence that they might not be recognized in any other form. There, there are artistic ways through which I think we can better express and explore our worlds and, and situate ourselves in our communities through what I would call uh, fragmentation <laughs> and, and the dissemination and the destruction and the rebuilding and the cutting up and rearranging of things and, and these uh, stylistic tropes that scholars might point towards and say, oh, that's really postmodern. Um, I would look at it as oh, this is a contemporary expression and a really reasonable response to the oppressive regime that has uh, sort of situated itself globally. So I, I think it's really important that we create spaces for students and teachers to uh, experiment with their writing and to uh, be playful and uh, destructive in the ways in which they're uh, reframing, parodying, uh, recontextualizing, uh, stealing, and uh, creating mosaics and, uh, and and other art pieces using the the media that are are, are otherwise oppressive for them. That's that's just a thought that I've had. That's wonderfully stated. Is, is there a way that you potentially connect uh, air salt to other conversations around disabilities or ableism or physical or mental health kind of conversations? Absolutely. The, writing right now? The, the, one of the biggest trends that I've uh, picked up on in, in the area of of trauma writing and of uh, queer writing and and uh, people who are working and navigating disability in their writing is the sense that your audience is going to be an able-bodied one and you need to uh, frame your experience in a format that they can appreciate. And so there's this, uh, the, and, and and that's something that I uh, felt resistant to from the very beginning. And I was like, no, I, I didn't, I don't experience time in the way that other people do because of my brain injury. So I'm, I'm not going to uh, tell this story in a way that makes chronological narrative linear, but it's not going to fit any of those standards. And uh I needed to be okay with that myself. <laughs> I need to give myself permission to uh, experiment with this, this sort of atypical, a linear way of framing an event rather than using these these structures of beginning, middle, and end. I uh, was was really encouraged by my mentors as well to have middles and ends and beginnings all over the place and, and to have that uh, sort of threaten the integrity of the coherence of the whole at any given point in time. Uh, I wanted every single page of Aerosol to be a self-contained poem that could stand and exist on its own without having to be situated into a greater narrative to be appreciated. And um, I hope that it did that. I don't know. I feel like the as as a collection, they've uh, they've me, my editor and I worked really hard to to uh, create a, a sense of this is how we're going to tell Ian's story. So just despite my best uh, efforts to to sort of disrupt the linear trajectory of, of narrative. There, there is a, uh, a kind of meta-narrative at play. There's, there's a, a beginning of sorts and there is an end of a kind, but I, I resist it 
And I, I think that that resistance uh, should be cultivated in all of these populations and communities who would feel pressured to frame their story in a very uh, beginning, middle, and end format, because then they could just become shelved and, and, and cataloged and forgotten and, and easily uh, dismissed as, oh, this is just another marginalized narrative by this community and population. It's like, no, 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 this is, this, these are, are desperate pleas for and attempts uh, to assert their freedom and agency of mind despite oppressive systems that they have to survive. I think it's really neat the way that you've sort of captured that. You've used multiple words to describe some of this, the urgency in this work, but you, you know, you've used words like anti-narrative and also meta-narrative. And I feel like Air Salt somehow plays with this idea of breaking down time, breaking down linearity and playing with both anti-narrative and meta-narrative simultaneously, which is a really neat paradox almost that I, that I find really, really compelling. And before our interview today, you know, I, I was rereading your book and I was flagging little spots where the poetry as found poems, right? I mean, you've appropriated found, found text and rearranged it, but there are moments within these found poems where they're self-referential with sometimes philosophical, sometimes humor, humorous um, sort of self-reference points to remind the reader that this book is self-aware as well. Uh, I'm thinking of scatter sentences on 61, where you say, I do feel that there's too much meta discourse, this act of collecting. And I thought that that's, what a beautiful thing to, to be able to produce a text that plays with anti-narrative, that, that can hover at a meta-narrative level, that can break apart time, but bring us into a sort of a gathered moment as well. And I just wanted to point that out again, again not really a question, but you know, you've used these terms, and I think I think that that idea of fragmentation, that idea that fragments can come together and still make a fractal. Thank you. the The intention with that piece there was to really put gesture towards how important it is that in this journey of discovery and and of exploration, that whatever sense of coherence you have, whatever conclusion you might be leaning towards, scatter it. Uh, whatever any uh, time that you feel like you're coming to a really definitive or authoritative uh, position or stance, um, undermine that. And that sort of constant interruption is, is, is more generative and, and I think more therapeutic than, uh, than the alternative. And, and this, is, this is sort of the argument that I, I hope my book sort of stands for, is the sense that this, uh, this continual redistribution and, and of, of, of voice and uh, of, of dissemination and dis disruption of, of coherence uh, is, is necessary part of, of, of recovery. And because um, when we force ourselves into a, uh, a single coherent endpoint, I don't think that that's, uh, that's the place that the trauma was, was, was gearing us for, um, if you wanted to, to read trauma as, as having intention, which it doesn't. But you bring up a really interesting uh, element of, of the book, which is this, the self-referentiality, which uh, was by design, of course, because many of the voices that I include are that of my fellow students. I took this manuscript as it was being written to my creative writing classes, and I offered early drafts to my peers. And, and part of the practice of that class was to offer written feedback to your colleagues. And I took all of that feedback and then I just turned it into more pro poetry that I would splice into uh, the, the, the later revisions. And uh, eventually my, my colleagues sort of noticed that I was doing this. And uh, one friend who uh, wrote, wrote this very scathing review of, of my process, she called me a rat bastard. And uh, you were, <laughs> and she, um, she, she, it was a very angry email. And I, uh, I, I, I thought it was hilarious because um, she threatened to sue me royally for the science experiment that I've been performing on my fellow students, it seems for months now. And uh, I obviously I was performing an experiment on, on and with my, my class through their expressions. 
and I, I hope to frame that in a way that that would be accessible to them. But uh, but at that moment, at least, she was performing a great deal of, of anguish and upset. She later went on to write uh, a really compelling um, blurb on the back of the book. So I'm I'm grateful that uh, she 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 followed my my process throughout. And so the the point that I'm trying to make here is this idea that um, the self-referentiality is a part of me appropriating the voices of people who are reading the poems. So I'm using their talk conversations about the writing and and reappropriating them and reframing them to talk about its own process. And so the, the self-reflexivity mirrors in on itself uh, at different points in time. And then I play with that a lot. And and the humor is something that a lot of people really enjoy and what would otherwise be a, a grief-stricken pit of despair. Yeah, there are some reprieves <laughs> for sure. Air Salt offers some reprieves. And there is a there's a cheeky, there's a sort of a cheeky facetiousness in, in some of the poetry that says, oh, I'm aware, I'm aware of what I'm doing. But because of the we-ness, that sort of we hyphen-ness um, of the text and that polyvocality, there's that sense of, you know, that metatextual level of the book commenting back on itself. And, and of course, you've captured in, in your notes in the book around the process involved in all that. But um, I don't feel like it ever does it at the expense of the community of people who contributed. It, it always feels like it centers back around them. Oh, it's um, making fun of itself more than anything. And it's it's talking about itself and to itself. It's it's really self-contained that way, I hope. I I have nothing but gratitude for the people who've who whose whose expressions I, I appropriated for this process. The um uh, if 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 there's anyone who I'm undermining in the in, in this expression, it's myself I, and and my own integrity and reliability as an author. So as someone who who experimented with undermining themselves and someone who I'm going to move forward thinking of as a conductor, what's next for, for conductor Kinney? It's a great question. I'm in the final stages of a really important process that I've been on uh, for the past few years, which I've dubbed Of Ash. And Of Ash is an exploration of our collective expressions uh, through social media. And uh, in, in, it's an extension in many ways of the uh, post-traumatic process of what I've offered here in Air Salt, but it's uh, rather than focusing on uh, this explicit event of this single subject that is Ian Kinney, uh, I'm looking and I'm, I'm spreading it my, my, my lens broader into uh, the community that I have cultivated around myself online. And I'm obviously looking and, and framing all of my practices as being a, a, a form of life writing. This form of life writing is taking people's Facebook posts and uh, arranging them as part of a, a collage of expressions that I encounter in the feed, and they're they're framed without context. Uh, there, there's there. I, I offer very little editing except for you know punctuation marks. I put a period where uh, an exclamation point would be things like this, just to to maintain the tone. And of Ash is I have literally hundreds of pages of people's because um, I've been doing this for years. And every time I, I take the posts that I, I see on the feed and I, I create this little block of text that's really a reflection of my feed that day, I, I post it back onto the in, onto Facebook. And um, a lot of people don't understand what, what's going on because it's uh, the, the the standard practice and, and you know, wouldn't hold it against them just to understand that anything that anyone posts on on Facebook is something that they're, they're saying about themselves and for themselves. But in In of Ash, I am saying something from the community for the community. And it's so much, I'm sort of acting again as this sort of conductor and sort of transmitter of the expressions and the texts that I receive. And uh, the results of that experiment have been uh, really fruitful. Specifically, when I contrast the expressions that I encountered and, and the of Ash samplings from before the pandemic to the of Ash samplings after the pandemic or, or during the pandemic, as, if, as, 
as we are right now. The ways in which people are framing their worlds and their social lives and uh, their and and the tone that they take is a uh, huge juxtaposition and contrast against the sort of post-pandemic expressions and the topics that they're that they're framing. Because it's in Avash, I. This, this collage format, this, uh, which really takes a lot of its cues from uh, the language poetry movement. Uh, I, I really found a lot of inspiration through that practice of just taking sentences as the primary unit of expression and looking at that as my, as my meaning and then uh, arranging sentences in such a way that creates a kind of dialogue or a kind of that there, there's something that happens between them that um, because you can tell that this is no longer a single voice speaking in a coherent way. This is a collection of voices. They're all speaking uh, from their own perspectives uh, about disjointed and disparate topics. And yet, nevertheless, it sounds coherent. And it sounds like someone is speaking, even though the only person who seems would, would, who, who could really be part of that process is the intermediary, which is me, or, or the, the reader, which is you. And, uh, and that, that's sort of what I'm experimenting right now. And that's, that's the exploration right now, is looking at the expressions that I find on social media and reframing them using a similar process that I did in an aerosol to draft of ash. That's uh, that's really interesting. It, it you know social media, but social spaces online are such an interesting space around for dialogue because a year can make such a substantial difference in how people behave <laughs> online. <laughs> let, let alone for years. I think you said you've been doing this for years or something. The the most impressive. Uh, challenge, I think, of, of writing of Ash is how little individual expression or how few individuals actually express themselves without using memes, without, without sharing something that someone else has posted. Very rarely do you encounter someone who's just written a sentence or two or a paragraph or two to talk about what's been going on in their day or what's been going on in their mind. But that is, that's active literary engagement with their community. They're writing and they're, and they're sharing that in a forum that their, their peers and colleagues can review and respond to in real time. And uh, it's, it's really exciting uh, from, from the perspective of, uh, as a literary scholar, to look at the memes and to look at the uh, shared expressions on our social media as a kind of literary text. How, what does that say about our, our current cultural and historical moment? So as, as uh, I'm, I'm, I'm framing these expressions out of Ash, not only for poetic purposes, but also as part of a historical curiosity, um, because it's, it's, it speaks a lot to my community and what we're thinking about and talking about these days. That sounds like a really exciting project, uh, Ian. I, I hope to see it one day. I hope that that I have the opportunity and the privilege to read it. And um, I really want to thank you for your time. Uh, I'm really grateful for you joining us today and, and for participating in this interview. And yeah, I, I wish you all the best and to thank you, all of you, odd you, even you, which is exactly how that resonated with me when, when I finished reading Air Salt. So thank you very much. You're so very welcome. And thank you for creating this space and, and welcoming me and, and inviting me to, to discuss this work and to talk about my process. It's uh, important to me that I'm able to, to do this. And I hope that uh, whoever's listening out there can take something important from, from these conversations and uh, in the terms of how they frame the, tra the traumas that they live through and how they can move forward and through and revisit and process that if they will. And uh, I... Your, 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 your gratitude is, is deeply felt. Thank you so much. I, I couldn't have done this without you. Thank you so much, Ian. We hope you enjoyed this interview of Ian Kinney by Paul Monnier. I am Mahmoud Ababni, and you are listening to Tea House Talks. We recognize the generous support of the Canada Research 
Chairs Program and the Social Sciences and the Humanity Research Council. We also appreciate the support of the Faculty of Arts and the Department of English at the University of Calgary, where our offices are housed, as well as the guidance of Mark Stuckel at the Taylor Family Digital Library. Tea House is run by Larissa Lai, Paul Monier, Joshua Whitehead, Aruna Srivastava, Mark Lynch, Marge Ruganda, Ryan Stern, and me. Stay tuned for the next episode of Tea House Talks. For more on the work of Tea House, including symposia, panels, and readings, please check our website at www.tiahouse.ca. That's tiahouse.ca. If you'd like to be in touch, send us an email at tiahouseyyc at gmail.com. Thank you for listening.